This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, 7.06 a.m. on Thursday, the 26th of January. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wang Xiaoning and Chong Jen Sun. Good morning. Now, in half an hour, we're going to discuss the outlook for the global economy in light of the looming recessions in the U.S. and Europe. But as always, we're going to kickstart the morning with a recap on how global markets closed overnight. So U.S. markets, they closed mixed. The Dow was up marginal by 0.03%, S&P 500 down marginally by 0.02%, the Nasdaq was down by 0.2%, and in Asian markets, the Nikkei was up by 0.4%, the Hang Seng and the Shanghai Composite, they were both closed, and the Straits Times Index, it was up by 1.8%, and the FBM KLCI, it was down by 0.1%. So for some analysis on what's moving markets, we have on the line with us Vishnu Varathan, Head of Economics and Strategy at Mizuho Bank. Good morning, Vishnu. Let's start our look um, in inward with Malaysia. Uh, Bank Negara Malaysia kept their OPR unchanged last week uh, during the MPC meeting. What does this signal in terms of their direction for monetary policy this year? Good morning. Um, so yeah, with BNM, I think the uh, messaging there is that they are pretty close to where they want to be in terms of policy tightening, but perhaps not at the end of the road. Uh, so one should read this uh, more as a tentative pause, but perhaps an optimistic pause, but but not uh, not the terminal rate uh, for sure. Because I, I think as long as there are uh, two aspects of risk, one is the ongoing inflation risk, the uncertainty around inflation in particular, and the other is the uh, ongoing rate hikes in the Western world, which can kick up uh, volatility, uh, which would then require some kind of uh, backstop, part of which lies in uh, interest rate differential. So these are two reasons why uh, we should read this as a uh, hopeful and tentative uh, uh, closure, you know, drawing to a closure, but not quite there yet. And Vishnu, December CPI for Malaysia eased to 3.8%, but core inflation remains quite sticky at still 4.1%. What impacts would any rationalisation of the current fuel subsidy programme have on those numbers? I think the uh, you know by and large the the good news is globally inflation uh, and and cost push cost push inflation seems to be uh, subsiding and it, it seems to have peaked and it's on, on in the process of subsiding but it can be a bumpy path uh, and rationalization of fuel subsidy what that does is that it is going to feed into particularly uh, headline inflation it's going to keep it stickier perhaps uh, have some upside risks to it. Uh, in an ordinary world, we would have said that, you know, the good news is that it shouldn't affect core inflation too much. But the trouble is under the current inflationary environment, what it could do is it could feed into uh, inflation expectations. And it could also have some uh, long memory effect because uh, fuel prices impact uh, many other downstream prices and you know right up to services at a time when China is reopening. So it's certainly going to keep uh, the process of uh, lowering inflation a lot bumpier and, and stickier. Okay, Vishnu, let's talk about Japan because the Japanese government cut its monthly economic assessment in January for the first time in 11 months. Uh, they are also downgrading their view of exports, imports and bankruptcies and it's bracing for the impact of a global economic slowdown. What is your view? Uh, is Japan in a pickle? I, I think Japan is acknowledging its links to the global economy 
And it does see the headwinds that are picking up. I mean, we've got uh, a chip sector so slowdown that's going to impact a lot of the high tech exports. Uh, it, we've got a high cost environment that's also going to erode, uh, you know, any growth in the economy, the profit margins, so on and so forth. And Japan also knows that even if BOJ keeps rates low, they cannot ex uh, escape completely the global impact of, of uh, higher interest rates that feed through swaps and all. In, so in, in short, Japan is acknowledging that uh, things are going to get bumpier and a bit more difficult in 2023, uh, uh, even if they were to pull all stops on, on monetary policy and, and fiscal policy. Uh, but that said, in, in terms of relative economic positioning, you know, relative to themselves and how the others are performing relative to how they performed, Japan perhaps may not be in the worst situation. The UK seems to be the most vulnerable, uh, and Eurozone really depends on uh, the Russia situation and, and, and you know, gas prices. But Vishnu, how is Japan going to unwind from its aggressive bond buying program? Is it possible that, at all? <laughs> I, I think that, that remains the biggest challenge for monetary policy in Japan. Um, the, the fact that the balance sheet uh, risks are so large and the balance sheet is so large, there can be no quick unwind without ramifications. So this has got to go uh, hand in glove with uh, fiscal policy, how they slowly unwind from it. And in the meantime, uh, they would need to engage the private sector to participate in, in the bond uh, buying program. The good news is a lot of these risks can be managed onshore uh, because that's where the bond holdings are. Uh, and, and that uh, means that they have got somewhat a, a greater degree of control over it, especially since Japan is a net asset country uh, in, in terms of global asset positioning. Turning our attention over to China, Vishnu, China's reopening has sparked hopes of a demand-led boost that will soften any chance of a hard economic landing for G7 nations. But how realistic is this view, given that China itself is facing macro headwinds from slow growth to a depressed property sector? So you're asking me whether in the year of the bunny we're going to have carrots or <laughs> go down the rabbit hole. Um, so, I mean, uh, me being a pessimist, um, my, my sense on this is that, you know, China's reopening is, is certainly a cyclical tailwind. So the, just the process of reopening means less impediments uh, to industry, uh, you know, Chinese tourists going out. All these are going to raise certain aspects of demand. But there are two big aspects that we cannot escape from. One is, uh, and, and that's the elephant in the room, the geopolitical tensions continue to mount the chips embargo on China, so on and so forth. So for anyone who thinks that this ride will not be bumpy, uh, I think the, the news is more bad than good. Uh, the other is, as you rightly point out, there is that uh, overhang of uh, property market depression, so on and so forth. China is doing everything it can to provide liquidity backstops, but we think that recovery will still be a subpar recovery for, you know, even if they were to pull all stops, because confidence will take a while to recover. Uh, and the organic recovery in property sector might take longer, even if they were to provide uh, all the liquidity uh, funding that's required for the time being. So our, our big sense on China is it's going to perhaps get better growth in 2023, given the very low base in 2022, but it will fall short of its own expectations of five to five and a half percent. And for the rest of the world, the, the, the type to lift the other boats is going to be far shallower than most people anticipate. And Vishnu, I'd like to get some of your thoughts on oil prices. OPEC expects oil demand to rise in China by 500,000 barrels per day in 2023. But at the same time, we have seen some crude inventory built in the US. As a result, do you think crude oil will break through the $100 barrel level anytime soon? 
with, with oil prices, you know, prediction has been uh, really the, the widowmaker trade. Um, so the way I look at this is there is a, you know, there's great Western resistance to high oil prices. Uh, and so that means two things that's going to happen. So the $100 barrier for that to be broken cleanly, it would entail some kind of uh, acute geopolitical risk. Whereas based on demand recovery, the $100 would be harder to break for two reasons. One is we don't think demand is going to get back higher than pre-COVID levels in any case. This is a recovery process. The other is you've got two major headwinds to it. One is uh, actions that can be taken by the US and the other uh, Western nations to try to dampen prices. Uh, and besides, there's also the monetary policy aspect. If oil prices rise sharply, then the expectation of markets is that monetary policy could tighten further. That in turn would dampen demand. So oil's price in its own strength lies its weakness. And, and that's that's the way we look at oil prices for the time being. And Vishnu, I have a conundrum for you. And it's a question about the ringgit. Because at the last MPC meeting, Bank Nagara didn't raise rates, much to the surprise of the market. But yet it seems like the ringgit has rallied against the US dollar 4.2620, currently pound 5.2920, and even against the Sing dollar 3.2464. Why? I would have expected a rise in interest rates to actually help the ringgit. And that's, that's a really good question. So the, the context that we want to frame this in is uh, ringgit's outperformance, particularly against the Sing dollar, in which case you can say it's generalized outperformance, given that Sing dollar tends to you know reflect the general trend. Uh, it has been since uh, you know sometime early to mid-November. The ringgit is up about 10%. This actually reflects what has happened in the dollar. The dollar index is down 10% over the exact same time period. And I think the China trade for the ringgit has been pretty good. Over the many, many years, there's been quite a positive correlation between uh, China's economy, the renminbi and the ringgit. Uh, and I think to a large extent, the commodity play, including the energy play, and just the China effect uh, has been a case for uh, the extra beta performance and, and also getting past the political uncertainty farm hump uh, has added to the tailwinds in the ringgit. Thanks, as always, for the chat, Vishnu. That was Vishnu Varathan, Head of Economics and Strategy at Mizuho Bank, giving us his take on some of the trends that he sees moving markets in the days and weeks ahead. Yeah, I guess in terms of all prices, he thinks that it will likely not break the $100 a psychological barrier anytime soon. Uh, and he thinks that what will need to happen is uh, heightened geopolitical risk and demand uh, in terms of all, it will still be below pre-COVID levels. Yeah, I think we should turn our attention to one of the big US story stocks out there that just reported, which is Boeing. You know, they are just one of the two airline makers, the other one being Airbus. So they reported fourth quarter results, posting losses as labour and supply strains overshadow demand. So loss per share was actually $1.75, despite revenue coming, up, coming in close to $20 billion US dollars. So airlines and aircraft manufacturers, they've benefited from a sharp recovery in air travel. And we all see that, yeah. But Boeing's leaders have been hesitant to ramp up aircraft production until the supply chain has stabilized. The company is producing 31 of its 737 jets a month and plans to increase that to about 50 per month in 2025 or 2026. So that's still quite a runway ahead. Yeah, but the street still likes this. I think it's very much a recovery story. And, you know, about uh, if you look at the numbers, there are 19 by six holes 
no sales. Consensus target price for this stock was 220 US dollars. Last time priced during regular market hours, it was actually up 70 US cents to 212 US dollars and 68 cents. All right, it's 7.18 in the morning. We're taking a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to cover more top stories in the newspapers and portals this morning. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.